Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is the Recording Academy's Chief Industry and Government Relations Officer, Daryl Friedman. But lots of things to talk about. First of all, the top 10 highest grossing auctioneered vinyl albums. There's some really interesting choices here. And I think you'll find that some are kind of as expected and others are way, way from the outside. So what's the number one most expensive auctioned album? I bet you didn't guess it's Wu-Tang Clan's Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. This went for $2 million. What's the reason? Well, it's the only copy. (laughs) And they only made one. So what's interesting here is that the next bestseller is the Beatles' White Album, and this went for $790,000. The reason why it went so high, it was formerly owned by Ringo. The number three went for $300,000. This is Elvis Presley's My Happiness, and the reason why, it was a test pressing of his very first record. Number four is the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's, and... It went for 290000 It was signed by all four Beatles. Okay, I get that. Number five, John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Double Fantasy. The last record supposedly signed by John Lennon went for $150,000. Number six, the Beatles, Yesterday and Today, only because it has some rare artwork on it, 125000 Are we seeing a trend here? Coming in at number seven, again, the Beatles. Till There Was You, this is a 10-inch test pressing, $77,500. Number eight, this comes from a little outside here, Aphex Twin, Caustic Window is the name of the album. It's a test pressing, and there are only five that were ever released. So this went for $46,300. I wouldn't have expected that. Number nine is Tommy Johnson's Alcohol and Jake Blues. Don't know why. But it went for $37,100. I don't know who Tommy Johnson is, and I don't know why anyone would want to spend that for his album. Also, at number 10 is Frank Wilson, Do I Love You, Indeed I Do. Again, don't know why this happened, but it went for $25,752. So these are the top 10 highest grossing auctioned vinyl albums. There's some that you'd expect and others that you wouldn't, but it's interesting what people will pay money for if they think it's rare. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, is now available, and it's also the number one bestseller on the Amazon Music Business Book Charts. Thank you, everybody, for your support. I appreciate it. It's comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from the interviews from this podcast. You'll find it on Amazon and most other online book retailers, as well as a bookstore near you. Now, I'm sure you remember Monster Cable, and I bet you might even have some. Monster Cable's seemed to be everywhere for about a period of, oh, maybe 10 or 15 years. And for the most part, what they tried to market was the fact that they were a better sounding cable. I think a lot of people that didn't know any better kind of bought into that. Music pros didn't, or not many of them anyway. That being said, there's some really interesting developments in Monster. You probably haven't seen Monster too much lately, and there's a reason for that, actually. 
This is a company that's actually been around for a long time. It was started in 1979 by audiophile and engineer Noel Lee. And he thought he could make a cable that would make things sound better. And of course, I've heard this, and you've probably heard this, where cables do make a difference. (laughs) I don't think so. In the case of Monster, however, what they did make is an overpriced but a durable and good-looking cable. And you saw them everywhere at retailers, mostly because they had this huge markup. 80% in many cases. And also, Monster Products, as they are now known, has over 6,000 products. So there's a lot for retailers to sell at a big markup, and that's why they like it. That being said, Monster kind of got in over its head, especially in the early 2000s, as it began to sue everyone that used Monster in a title. So they sued the Discovery Network. They sued Walt Disney over Monsters Incorporated. They sued Bally's. They sued Hanson's Beverage for Monster Energy Drink. They even sued the Chicago Bears for their slogan, Monsters of the Midway. They didn't win many of these and probably cost them a lot in attorney's fees. But that being said, they were very, very protective of a brand that I don't know was (laughs) that worth protecting to begin with. Well, what really put them over the top was in 2008, they entered into a deal with Dr. Dre over Beats Electronics. And this was originally going to be just about headphones. And of course, their headphones really took off. Monster was responsible for the marketing. Monster was responsible for the manufacturer. They already knew how to do that, so they were good at it. And made them a lot of money. But eventually, the deal was terminated, supposedly mutually, but I'm not so sure that was the case. It was terminated in 2012. Then, Monster decided that they could do better. And what they did was they tried to launch a replacement to Beats. Instead of using Dr. Dre, they used Earth, Wind & Fire and Miles Davis and a number of other celebrity musicians that really didn't carry the weight of Dr. Dre at the time, especially in the demographic that he was popular in. So in fact, that turned out not to be a moneymaker for him. In the meantime, a lot of retailers also stopped selling Monster because there was a conflict with Beats. And of course, Beats was going to be eventually bought by Apple. And uh, as a result, you don't see Monster in big retailers. So that brings us to today. Monster is kind of teetering on the edge. So what they decided to do is try something that was a little bit more current, more hip, and they decided to launch an ICO. An ICO is an initial coin offering. It's very much like an IPO in the stock market, only this is using cryptocurrency. So they came up with something that they called Monster Money. (laughs) Monster Money, yeah. It was based on Ethereum. That's probably the biggest competitor to Bitcoin. And Monster was trying to raise $300 million because what they wanted to do was launch a global blockchain-based e-commerce platform. And in theory, that was actually a good idea. That being said, it wasn't a good idea to use an ICO and to try to use cryptocurrency. And in fact, what ended up happening was the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, came down really hard on them and basically said, look, you can't do this. This is not a good idea. You're not following the rules. So that caused a lot of turmoil with the CFO resigning and the auditors and the president of the company being fired and a big change of the board of directors. And it looks like Monster is not going to survive. It's not doing well 
And this kind of might have been a Hail Mary, so to speak. One of those things where one last thing, let's try see if we can raise a whole bunch of dough to bring us back where we were before. The reason why I bring this up is you've probably all seen monster cables before. You might have used them. You might even own some. And then all of a sudden, they were sort of gone. You don't see them so often. And when you do see them, they don't nearly have the cachet that they once did. And they're less and less necessary because, let's face it, we're not using as many cables as we used to. There's so much that's wireless these days. So for Monster, one of their big sellers were HDMI cables, and we don't need HDMI if we're going wireless and if we're using Thunderbolt and USB-C and other systems that are taking the place of expensive cables. So that's the story of Monster. Cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and Ethereum and there's dozens of others are popular these days more because people think it's a money-making scheme than anything. It's not really a technology because there's an underlying technology that they all basically use, which is blockchain. For many companies, they see this as a way to get money because anytime someone mentions blockchain, there seems to be investors everywhere that wants to throw money at them. But in the case of Monster, it doesn't look that way. So many artists, bands, musicians, engineers, and producers want to know the latest on the Music Modernization Act bill now making its way through Congress. There's so much interest in this that I thought I'd bring in an expert to get us up to speed. Daryl Friedman has been with us before in Podcast 184, and he's the Recording Academy's Chief Industry and Government Relations Officer. Daryl has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in Washington and how that could affect and benefit everyone in the music industry. In the interview, we talked about the Music Modernization Act and exactly how it's going to help musicians, songwriters, and producers, what it needs to finally pass and what happens if it doesn't, the efforts of the Recording Academy to push things along, and what you can do to help. We spoke via Skype, his office in the nation's capital. Let's talk about the Music Modernization Act. Just to bring everyone up to speed, you're probably tired of talking about this already, but if you can just tell us briefly what it is and where we're at today in terms of where the legislation stands in the path in Congress. Well, the Music Modernization Act is really an historic bill. It's a combination of several elements of legislation that have been there to help every kind of music creator. It helps the songwriter, it helps the artist, it helps the producer and engineer. And all these different bills that we've been hoping would be come together in one bill so music community can, can lobby united has actually happened. It was introduced earlier this year before Grammys on the Hill and the music community has come together, but also has been joined by many of the digital music services who also want to see some certainty and some, some uh, agreement about these issues. So we have a bill that literally was passed unanimously out of the House of Representatives one week after Grammys on the Hill. And now it's in Senate. We have to get this bill passed this year because this is the end of the Congress at the end of this year, and a lot of our great champions are leaving. So every effort is being made to get this bill passed as soon as possible. That being said, there are some that are arguing against this bill. You would think that everybody involved in the music industry would be behind this 100%, but that's not the case. No, and in Washington, very few things are 100% unanimous, but there's a great, a very great coalition of support among uh, many stakeholders, but there's still some outliers. And essentially what this bill is going to do is try and create a fair market value for all music creators, whether they be songwriters, artists, or studio professionals. And you can imagine that some people who use the music 
uh, would prefer not to pay fair market value, they would prefer to pay below market value. So currently we still have two corporations who are um, opposition to the bill, SiriusXM, which is concerned about some of the um, elements that correct the pre-1972 anomaly that has prevented some of the older artists or legacy artists from being paid, and um, Music Choice, which is that cable provider of music that um, was grandfathered in on a, on a rate standard that uh, gave them kind of a below market rate, and they would like to keep that below market rate forever, and we say it's time after this many decades to have fair market value. Yeah, I can see why why they'd be against that because it's really counter to their business model. So I guess it makes sense that they would prefer to keep the status quo. But that being said, for everybody else, it seems like a total win. And just by the fact that you can get something unanimously passed in committee, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Unanimously passed on the House floor. Oh, it was on the floor too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it was really, um, you know, when you think about a coalition that has the artist groups as we are, and songwriter groups as we are. Then you have the uh, Songwriters Guild, you have the Songwriters of North America, you have the music publishers, major and minor music publishers, and indie. you have the Major Label Association, the Indie Label Association, ASCAP, BMI are both on board, and you have the Digital Media Association that represents many of the music services, and Pandora. I mean, it's really a coalition that we've never seen before, and we think that's why we get this bill passed this year. Where is it at in terms of where it needs to be to pass? Now it's past the, the House or the Senate, right? It's past the House. And um, the way it works in the Senate is a little different than the House. The way it works in the Senate is you can either have floor time, have a debate in the Senate floor, and you really need to have 60 votes to make that work, as you've heard in so many other cases. But for a bill like this, when the Senate is so pressed for time, they have a Supreme Court nominee and many other traditional nominations, it's, it's much more likely that this bill would pass on something called unanimous consent, meaning that it doesn't get a floor debate, it just kind of goes through, and you assume that all 100 senators are okay with it. But under unanimous consent, if either one, if even one senator has an objection to it, they can pull the bill up. So we have to make sure in the coming days and weeks that 100 senators out of 100 are either supportive or neutral on the bill. So hopefully we can get this thing passed on unanimous consent. It would then need to go back to the House um, because of some changes that have been made. It's not exactly the same House bill anymore, so we think the House will pass it quickly and hopefully get this thing signed into law. What were the changes that were made? A couple of compromises with some of the services. Um, you may have heard last week there was a, an issue with CSAC where their, um, their uh, subsidiary, Harry Fox, was concerned that um, some provisions of the bill would exclude them from the marketplace. So those, um, those arrangements have been made. There have been some other minor um, tweaks and fixes, but generally the bill is does what the House bill would do, and so we think the House will pass it pretty quickly once it comes back to them. Okay, so your job then is talking to the senators, or at least the Senate staffers, to influence them to go along with this then, right? Right, and all the Music Coalition is working together on this, and our uh, advocates here in Washington at the Recording Academy are on the Hill literally every day, um, talking to senators and making sure that they understand the issues, and hope, hoping that convince a hundred of them that this bill is good to go. Yeah. The Recording Academy has been really involved in this and in ways that I don't think they've been in the past. I mean, you've worked for them for quite a while, but that being said, there seems to be concerted effort and lots of cooperation that I don't think was there before, at least in the same way, right? 
I think that's right. I mean, in, my, in 2014, we proposed a, a concept because the individual bills, the small bills that were dealing with discrete issues, weren't going anywhere. And we proposed a concept of one unified bill because Congress was getting confused with all these different bills. And we looked like we were competing with each other, publishers and labels, artists and songwriters. And we said, and Neil Portnow actually said at Grammys on the Hill, let's have one music, what we call an omnibus bill in Washington, or for short, we call it the music bus bill. And it took a few years for the, you know, the, everyone to kind of agree to that, but starting in this year, we have this comprehensive bill. Everyone's on board with one bill. And it really started um, with, the new, with the Grammys being in New York this year, this past year. Um, the congressional folks can very easily come up to New York much more easily than they could to LA. So the committee actually held a hearing in New York um, to look at these issues. And all the witnesses pretty much said, you know, we're all creators. These are issues that are important to us. And when they came back from New York to Washington, they started working on this bill. And as I said, they introduced it one day, one week before Grammys on the Hill and passed it one week after Grammys on the Hill. How unusual is it for a hearing to be held outside of Washington? Occasionally it's done. They're called field hearings, but in, in, it is unusual. Most of the hearings happen here in Washington. Um, but I, thought, I think they thought it's a great opportunity to be right where the entire music industry was. And not just the music industry, not just the creative industry, but the broadcast industry is in, in for the Grammys. The deep media companies are in New York for the Grammys. The entire universe of music was in one place at one time, and we offered to provide any assistance we could at the Grammys to make sure this hearing happened. Literally, it took place two days before the show, on Friday before the Grammy telecast. Now, I can see why Sirius and Music Choice would be against this, from, or at least the part of it for the, uh, well, I, I forget what it's called, but it's uh, the, for the copyrights prior to 1972, right? So they don't have to pay royalties on that. I can see why they would do it. Has there been pushback from the rest of the broadcast community? Because it does affect them in a way as well. Probably not to the same degree, but it does affect them. All right, well, then, um, in this case, the National Association of Broadcasters is supporting the bill because they feel it's, it's complete and, and, and protects their interests enough and they're going to be paying um, you know, for the legacy artists as well. The one issue that the broadcast, um, the broadcaster piece is not in this bill, it's a long-standing issue that's important to the Recording Academy, which is the performance right in the sound recording. Today in the United States, nowhere else in the developed world, artists, producers are not compensated for over-the-air radio airplay. What's happening in that arena is that the, the artist and label community are having quite productive negotiations with the broadcast. And we didn't feel that those negotiations were completed in time for this legislation. But it's still an important issue, and it's allowed the broadcasters to be supportive of the Music Modernization Act, and hopefully we'll have a deal with them soon if we pass this in a future Congress. Wow, Daryl, that's been going on for a long time. What, 20 years, 30 years they've been talking about this? And there's been enormous pushback. So to get any kind of forward motion on this is pretty amazing. Yeah, before I was born, really, I mean, Bing Crosby, <laughs> about this issue is as long as there's been a recorded industry, um, as long as they, when, when bands stopped coming into radio stations to play live and they started playing records instead, this issue has been live. So it's been you know, really since the 40s. And um, what's, I think what the radio industry is seeing is that their industry is changing too. Mm. And they're moving online and terrestrial radio has a lot of competition. And they actually want to see um, a level playing field in other areas. So they, need, they know they need to Ah, okay. So it's a give and take here. So what are they getting in exchange? Well, we don't know what that deal would look like yet, but I think they see 
a world ahead where they need the artists and label support to um, to move into the digital world. And what they're seeing today is really a fight. They're really seeing kind of a battle with the artist community that they don't want. Um, and as Neil has said, you know, that nobody on the Grammys, when they used to accept a Grammy award and say, I want to thank radio. No one says that. They don't even mention radio. Yeah. Sometimes they mention you know, Pandora or, or Apple. So I think the radio industry sees that the industry is changing and they need to work with us and find a solution to this longstanding. I just read a report the other day. It was a Nielsen report. In it, they mentioned that there was a 92% of penetration for radio with adults in the United States, which is pretty amazing. But what they didn't break down was what percentage of that is music? Because so much of it could be sports and talk radio and, and whatever. And once upon a time, radio is where you went for music discovery, music consumption. But I think that's way, way down these days. I don't know what the figures are to you by any chance. Well, the, you know, certainly people are turning to um, playlists and digital music services for the discovery that they wouldn't get on radio anymore. And frankly, radio's playlists have become very homogenized over the years anyway. So it's not a, not a place to go for discovery. But what's interesting for the, the industry, there's still a large part of the population, especially the older population, that's listening to music on FM radio. The younger population, not so much. And what radio has been facing, what they know is coming is, First of all, it is the connected dashboard in the car. So where radio has been king for decades in the car, now you're going to be basically listening to your, your uh, digital music player at home, and you're going to take your phone, and your car is going to automatically connect. They know that's the challenge. And the other challenge is in the home, smart speakers. People are now just calling out, you know, Alexa, play you know, whatever kind of music. And even if they're calling out the FM station that they want, the radio stations still have to pay for that usage digital transmission. So really FM over the air is, is I think somewhat in danger. I think the radio industry sees that and would probably like to solve the problem with us from fighting us. Well, in Europe, they sort of got around that, haven't they, with digital audio broadcast? That's been online for 10 years or so, and we've never really gotten there in this country. Right, and even, yeah. the, even the analog terrestrial over the air broadcast in, in European state European countries still pay performance rent, and even some uses that we don't have here for the songwriters paid over there, like movie theaters. So we definitely want to be um, the leader in intellectual property, not the follower. So we like to point out that you know we're we're in the company of North Korea, and Iran, and China. Really, some bad actors on IP are the only other countries that don't pay the performance right for artists on radio, and you know every other developed country in the world does pay. So we want to be in the good company. Was this due to the lobbying efforts of the NAB? In other words, the, the reason why the broadcasters aren't paying artists, is it because of the NAB lobbying? Oh, absolutely. A big part of it is the NAB. They've been, um, long before the Recording Academy even had an office in Washington, the NAB has been a powerful force because of, they have not only the radio stations, but the television industry, and they have a good reach all over the country. Um, what you're seeing in time now is that power balance shifting. Artists, songwriters, producers are making their voices heard. They're really overcoming some pretty major obstacles. Even what you saw last week, you know, a major corporation, a private equity company like Blackstone, basically um, had to answer to the voices of these thousands of songwriters. So um, the balance of power is changing, but also the marketplace is changing. I think broadcasters realize it's time to do a deal and settle this issue. What's interesting is I can remember going to NAB shows through the years 
And they would have President Bush, for instance, as the keynote speaker, or they'd have Senator Orrin Hatch, or powerful Washington entities that they would have as their speakers. And I would look at this and I think, well, you know, that's one way to keep the status quo going is to have friends in high places. Well, it certainly has helped, and they have been, um, you know, uh, and certainly in past decades, a uh, major power broker in Washington. And even today, their their leader, uh, Gordon Smith, is a former senator who's uh, very well connected and actually very well respected, including by me. I have a very good feeling about his views on this and his uh, forward thinking on it. But think about how the artists, songwriters, and producers have changed in their power base. I mean, we got Congress to come to the Grammys and hearing the NAB's never had anything like that at the NAB show so I think the creators voices really are coming out in a way you've never heard before and they will be louder than any other voices well that's the point I was getting to in fact that now the efforts of the academy have been bearing fruit where there's been a lot of outside the box thinking that hadn't been there before and it appears to be working. I saw something about a dinner that was happening where Little Big Town was honored, and there was a lot of legislators and staffers that were invited to that or were involved in that, which I don't think you would have seen in past years. Right. Grammys on the Hill, which is the event you're talking about this year with Little Big Town, um, has really become the prominent music industry event for Congress. And it's, it sells out every year. And it's, it's the kind of thing now where, before we even announce who the honoree is, we get calls from the hill saying, what's the date? I want to put on my boss's calendar. So it's become important. But I'll tell you something that's even more important, which is we have about 100 creators from all over the country coming to Washington programs on the hill, and it's very effective. And as I said, the, the bill was put on the, the Judiciary Committee one week before, and the chairman of the committee even mentioned Grammys on the hill, both at, when he put the bill on the floor and when he put it on the committee. So it, it works. But even more effective are the voices of creators in their own districts talking to congressmen during the recess. Um, that's when they really feel it. When, they, when you're from a district where you don't think maybe, you know, it's Colorado, you don't think of it as a music town or, you know, another state, South Dakota, and you don't think that the music industry is there and you're home for recess and you're talking to your constituents and suddenly on the door knocks a group of 10 producers and artists and songwriters and they say, we live in your district, we vote in your districts, we want you to consider issues. So our district program, which last year for the first time reached all 50 states, I think it's become even more important than the, the work we do in Washington because that's when um, Congress people really feel it. You know, there's an old saying in, in Washington, when I feel the heat at home, I see the light in Washington. <laughs> What's interesting with that though is I think there's a general feeling, maybe I'm wrong about this, I sort of feel that people think that if they go and do that, and they go and visit their congressman or the congressman's staff, that it's not important that because they're not someone powerful, it'll be overlooked or not taken seriously. But apparently what you're saying is that's not the case at all. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, it's natural for us to be cynical in today's world. And politics makes us cynical and we watch the news and we think there's nothing we can do about this. So one of my favorite things in this job is to take somebody to meet their congressman first time. And they realize this actually works. I can actually go see my representative and he listens to me and he understands that it's an issue in his district or state and he will change his position because he sees the local angle. And so it's it's fun to see the cynicism evaporate because once you've done this once, 
it's addictive. You know how effective it is. And um, we love to bring as many people as possible. This year's District Advocate Day, just right before the election, you know, we have we've had up to two thousand people from fifty states doing it. We're going to try to increase that even more this year. Wow! Wow! Now you would think that a congressman would be the same as most of us. We're inundated with data, with statistics, with people that are asking for our time. And you would think it'd be the same with the congressman, where there'd be so much that they would be inundated with that it's very hard to get through with your particular issue and make it important to them. Right. Well, again, the local angle helps because the politician, anything that that matters in his district is going to matter to him as an issue. But also the creative people are great connectors to Congress better than any other lobbying group that you would have come visit them. The concrete manufacturers come in to visit the Congress, but they're going to say, yeah, I, I need that in my district too. When a songwriter comes in, there's a kinship there because legislators essentially doing the same thing. They want to change the world. They want to, they want their writing to reach people and they want to um, have their voice heard. And that's what creators do. And creators are also great storytellers. They can explain the issue in a way it doesn't get bogged down in legal legalese and analysis, they can explain it in real terms because what does the songwriter do but tell a story. So I think it's actually very easy to work with these folks and have them be compelling in those congressional offices. Okay. Now that being said, is it more common for an attorney representing a client to go in and talk to the congressman or the staff, or is it a business owner, for instance, or, or in this case, a creator? Well, we, we think a combination of this all works. I mean, for us at the Academy, we represent the creators, so our primary focus is the songwriter, artist, and studio professional. But very often they'll bring their managers with them. We can explain the business aspect, or a publisher or a label executive can explain the investment that they make in the music. So it really is a combination of all of those things. Can you explain uh, just for our listeners, which part of the Music Modernization Act that I think is really significant, and that's the AMP Act. Well, I'm not surprised that you would you would uh, find that piece uh, most interesting. And really, you know, when we looked at this issue from the beginning, we did some research and the congressional um, staffers helped us do this. We said, how many times in American history have the producers been mentioned in law? Artists have some protection, songwriters have some protection, but what about the producers? And the congressional research office did a look at this for us, went from the beginning of American history how many hits have we had with producers mentioned? And the answer was zero. So it's, the, the impact is exciting for two reasons. One, it solves a long-standing problem for producers and engineers getting paid. Sound Exchange has been a great um, partner in this because they already voluntarily do some of these practices, but this would codify those practices to get producers money faster and direct payment to them, and also create some new avenues for, for revenues from older works. So that the, the, the nice piece about it is the legislation itself is, is effective and will help producers and engineers. But just the recognition for studio professionals in American law for the first time in history, that's what I get excited about that just as much as the actual impact of the law. Now, you mentioned older works. So is some of this retroactive? It's all going forward in royalties, but the, the problem is there's a system of um, payment now that requires a letter of direction from the artist. No problem. Every time a deal is cut between an artist and a producer, they get the letter now. But what about a work that was done prior to the system? What about a work that was done prior to Sound Exchange's existence in 1995, before we even knew there'd be a digital performance royalty? The AMP Act goes through a, has a process of going back and getting some of that money 
on a going forward basis, but for older works and not getting this burdensome letter of direction from an artist that may have actually been maybe deceased. So it eliminates that. Oh, okay. That's significant. That's a big deal. Yeah. For older works, it gives them a revenue stream. The artist still can object, of course, if there's a reason, but in most cases, the default answer is to get that money to the producer and engineer. It's really important that a lot of that paperwork can be cut out. And I have a personal issue here that's not in the music business. It's something that I'm dealing with with the, the Veterans Administration. And the amount of paperwork that's required is burdensome. And the fact is there's so much research that has to go into it and they want original documents. And it's, so it's probably much more intense than a producer would have to go through here getting a letter of direction. That being said, anytime you have to go above and beyond what's kind of easy and being done online, it's welcome because wow, that's the last thing any of us, any creator wants to do is more paperwork. Yeah, and I think for you know for new works, I think the the managers and the artists and producers are somewhat used to the process of letters of direction. But it's really those pre nineteen ninety five works where you sometimes can't even find the artist. Yeah, and that's where we need to just eliminate that whole process and find a way to get the producer some revenue without the letter of direction. That's cool. Okay, so when do you think that this is going to come up for a vote? Well, we hope in the coming weeks. I mean, the, the time is always an issue in. Um, in the Senate. So again, we doubt we'll get floor time. We hope to pass this on unanimous consent. So what we're trying to do now is make sure we have 100 senators who um, who will not oppose it, at least support or neutral. And we think that will probably go into the fall sometime. If, when the bill passes on unanimous consent in the Senate, it will go back to the House for passage and then ultimately to the president for signature. So we're hoping that will all happen before um, they break for the election recess in October. If that doesn't happen, we'll continue the fight through the rest of the year. But it really does have to be done this year because everything starts over in the new Congress come January, and a lot of our champions have retired. So we want to get this bill done this session. Heller High. Okay, so let's say the worst comes to pass and you can't get it done. New Congress comes in. You have to start from scratch? Yeah, literally we would have to reintroduce the bill in the House and Senate. And we don't want to face that outcome because, frankly, a lot of the folks who've been champions of this Chairman Bob Goodlatte on the uh, House side, uh, Daryl Issa on the House side, uh, Congressman Joe Crowley, and Congressman Tom Rooney, who introduced the AMPAC, and on the Senate side, Senator Hatch and Senator Corker, they're not coming back next year. They're either retiring or for other reasons um, are not going to continue in Congress. So we have to get this bill done this year as soon as possible. So all your listeners should please know that um, we're going to need their help. And you know, please go to Grammy.com. Slash advocacy, there's a way you can contact your senator and let them know how important this is to you. Are there some senators in particular that could use a little help? Yeah, if you're an Oregon senator, um, Senator Wyden is not convinced this is a good thing, and uh, we are working with him to try and change his view on that. But uh, Senator Wyden is certainly one that we're focused on, and um, some others as well, but I think Wyden would be the, the critical person here. Does it have to be 100 affirmative, or can some just abstain? Yeah, if, if a senator is neutral on the bill, that's fine. It really is a unanimous consent goes through unless a senator actually stops it. One senator could put a hold on the bill, in which case it would you'd have to continue to work that senator. So really, we're looking for 100 senators to be supportive or neutral. Neutral is totally fine in this case. I will say we have almost a majority of the Senate 
actually as co-sponsors of this bill. So we're almost to 51 senators out of 100 who affirmatively support it. And if the rest were neutral, this thing is unanimous consent and hopefully becomes law. Then you said it still has to go back to the House, though, right? Because of the alterations. Yeah. Because of alterations. And we think the House, since the House passed the original bill um, unanimously, we think the, the, the changes are not significant. The House will not be an issue. We really just have to get it through the Senate in time and get this thing back to the House and then to the President. How soon would it go into effect? It would start early next year. That's awesome. It's pretty immediate, yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for your efforts. This is important to all creators. It's important to everybody that's in the music business, and I think we can all see the importance of it. So thank you for your efforts. Oh, thank you, and, and I'll thank the Academy members who, thousands of them, have come to Washington and gone to their district offices or sent an online message or call. So it's, they're really the best lobbyists we have, so I, I thank them as well. But thank you, you know, I can actually see why a creator would be, a songwriter, an artist, would be very effective because there's some of that glitterate that kind of rubs off on people that aren't used to being around a celebrity, even a minor celebrity. And uh, you don't get that from someone in the cement industry, I would think. Yeah, and we always try to use a combination of uh, well-known artists you know, who, who really are there to get the attention but don't need the funds. I mean, they're doing well. But we also want to show the producers, the songwriters, the engineers, the backup artists and backup singers behind the scenes who really do need this income. And so it's a combination of having both types of those creators come see the legislators to be most effective. Just out of curiosity, does having the non-celebs there, how effective is that when, when you see the congressmen or the staffers interacting? Do you find that for some reason maybe they can relate to them better? If they're constituents, they're very effective because it matters. These are working people, essentially small business owners songwriter is the smallest of small businesses yeah. and so they they relate to them very well i mean i think the celebrities you know get the door open for us and get the press attention and those kinds of things but in many ways the legislators and staffers want to meet their constituents real people who are feeding their families by writing songs and, and engineering records in order to keep up with the latest on the music modernization act and other music related bills before congress go to grammy.com and look under news or press releases you can also follow regular updates on my Music 3.0 music industry blog. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and now on Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>